0: This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. Located in Percival, Virginia, Catoctin Creek Distilling Company is the Virginia Rye Whiskey. From its traditional production methods to the land that infuses every bottle, everything about Catoctin Creek is inspired by the history and craft of Virginia. Founded by Scott and Becky Harris in 2009, Catoctin Creek is proud to be the first legal distillery since Prohibition in Loudoun County. And if you were drinking whiskey in Virginia before Prohibition, you are most certainly drinking rye whiskey which is what Catoctin Creek is known for. Considered Virginia's most awarded whiskey, Catoctin Creek's flagship product, Roundstone Rye, is a 100% rye single barrel whiskey produced in the tradition of slower distillation in copper pot stills. That process results in a richer flavor, texture, and spice. This whiskey is delicious. So if you're ever in Percival, Virginia, stop in and say hello to Scott and Becky Harris at Catoctin Creek Distilling and tell them that Howard sent you and get some Round Stone Rye. It makes some darn good gin and brandy, too, I'm going to tell you. So just stop in and see them. You'll be very happy you did. And now, let's get on with the show.
1: We're a group of people who naturally like spirits on the higher side just for the flavor, you know, not because we want to be out there and get... (laughs) totally wasted all the time but just you know the the flavors that you can get through in those fuller or higher proof spirits are just something that you can't replicate necessarily going to the liquor store and personally I'd rather give you that spirit at a higher proof as long as it's balanced and and drinkable at that proof and you can add the water you want to it. I mean, water's free. Um, I'm not gonna give you a a bottle that's half half booze and half water um, and charge you the same amount for it. It just doesn't make any sense.
0: This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage, don't forget to subscribe to the show, and let's get started thank you asia hello and welcome to barrel tasting i'm howard Fletcher, and this is the second part of my visit to 1-8 distilling located in ivy city in washington dc last week i spoke to partners in the dc growing craft distilling industry sandy wood and alex laufer they are the co-founders of 1-8 distilling this episode today will be the conversation that i had with their head blender stephen corrigan now if you haven't heard last week's episode you don't need to have heard that episode to get into this one but please go check it out because it'll tell you about how 1-8 got started and an overview of the great things that they're doing here it's a really good show now as i said previously what follows is a conversation that i had with head blender stephen corgan amongst other things we discussed how they conjure up the sweet magic they do in ivy city and i was also given the honor and opportunity to taste some of their spirits so with no further ado here's my conversation about spirit blending farming, and a bunch of other related subjects with Stephen Corrigan, Head Blender of 1-8 Distilling. Let's all raise a glass. All right, I'm here with Stephen Corrigan, and he is the Head Blender here at 1-8. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Really happy to be here.
0: I just finished talking to Alex and Sandy, and they told me all about what you guys are doing down here. It really sounds... Fantastic! Thanks, man. I tasted the uh, barrel rested gin. Delicious. Awesome. Glad you, glad you like it. <laughs> Delicious. But tell me a little bit about you, Stephen. How did you get into distilling and what's your background?
1: Yeah, you know, I've had a pretty circuitous background, I guess is the best way to, to talk about it. So, kind of out of college, I, I worked a desk job. I was working in financial research in Chicago. Uh, very quickly realized that that was not a great career path for me. Um, just being behind a desk was, was kind of a death sentence for me. So, during that time, I was really looking for ways to get out of the house, work outside, do things that were, were very tangible and, and, and hands-on and things like that. Um, so I got hooked up with this community gardening group in Chicago, did that for a couple of years as a volunteer, uh, just just part-time kind of on my, on my nights and weekends and stuff like that, and decided I wanted to pursue that as a career. Uh, went back to school for sustainable farming, um, did that uh, a little bit all over the world, mostly focused kind of in the Northeast, so up in New England mostly. Um, a little bit in Europe as well. Um, and during that time I kind of spent, uh, I got exposed to the wine world as well. Did that um, kind of hand in hand, was was doing some farming, you know, growing grapes and, and pruning and stuff like that out in the vineyards and then working in wineries as well. So um, did that in Italy, did that in Germany. Did that up in Maine, which turned out to be kind of a crazy idea that didn't work out so well. Um, As as someone who's into wine, as I know you are, probably understands why that's a hard hard thing to take on. Uh, But I always had this kind of interest in alcohol, you know, not only being able to kind of grow something with my hands, but then being able to transform it into a product as well was something that really spoke to me. Spent about two or three years kind of in that, in that wine and, and alcohol world. Also got uh, exposed to a distillery uh, working part-time at a distillery up in Maine while I was up there. So that kind of cut my teeth on it. Um, really kind of sparked my interest. Um, and then went back into doing kind of full-time vegetable farming. Did that in Massachusetts and then moved down to Virginia to work at a non-profit down here. And the cool thing about vegetable farming and one of the things that I always loved about it is that it really gives you your winters to do with whatever you want. <laughs> Um, so one winter I heard these guys were opening up. I said, Hey, do you mind if I come and be free labor? They said, sure. Uh, and then I just sort of never left.
0: Okay. So okay.
1: Uh, I've been here pretty much since the doors opened.
0: Wow. So, um, how do you become a head blender? Cause you must have a very good palate, I'm assuming. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to boast too much, but, uh, you know, I, the thing that I think is important or is the most important is really to have this kind of library of flavors that you can draw on. So I'm someone who just kind of my background, kind of being around food all the time. This is going to sound gross, but I'm kind of <laughs> always putting stuff in my mouth. Okay. Um, and that's uh, uh, you know a really good way to kind of build up this library of flavors. And I think one of the most powerful things that flavor can do for us is connect back to memories. So that's kind of uh Flavor, sensations, and being able to trigger memories is something that I've always felt really strongly. Um, so it's not uncommon when I'm tasting a spirit or tasting anything for that matter that I you know, recall things from my childhood, recall things from five years ago, um, and I'm and very able to connect that to a, a specific memory of, of having eaten or drank something uh, previously. So um, I think being able to kind of have that large library to be able to draw on both both from taste, you know, we always sort of concentrate on taste for this, but I think smell is also a a really strong part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those kinds of tastes and and smells um, is something that's important. So one of the interesting things for blending for what we do, you know, if if you talk to a blender at one of the larger distilleries or, you know, someone who's putting out tens of thousands of barrels a year is that they constantly have to go for that sort of consistent flavor profile and for, a lot of our flagship products you know that is important um, but we have the uh, ability to kind of have these one-off products and have things that uh, we're really just kind of focused on the best flavors and trying to be able to you know whether it's going out into the barrel room or, or changing things in the distillation process to try to find that kind of optimal flavor um, is something that i really enjoy doing and
0: on the product consistency Piece because that's that's really intriguing to me. Yeah. Because uh, as you said, uh, I know a lot more about wine, more familiar with wine than I am with uh, distilling spirits. And you know, with wine, the the great juice mm-hmm. is so different year to year yeah.
1: that it's very
0: difficult to be able to make that consistently. Now, in my as being a novice, being knowing nothing about mixing spirits, I'm thinking it's more like chemistry. So it's just a recipe, but I'm thinking that from hearing from you, it's not.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more consistent, especially if you're just looking at, at fruit versus grain, you know, fruit is going to have a lot more variability from year to year. And that's the reason why you look at, you know, most wineries out there, put a vintage date on the bottle. Um, I honestly wish we could do that for spirits. And there are some people kind of playing around with it. Um, But you know, it, there is a lot more variability from year to year with fruit than grain, you know, whether it's going to go into a a fermented product like wine or whether it's going to go into a distilled product like a brandy or a, you know, um, Applejack or cognac, whatever, um, it's going to be, you know, if you go to places like cognac and France and, and Normandy where they produce Calvados, you know, you will see vintage dates on bottles and you can see a pretty clear distinction from year to year, which is interesting to see. Um, that being said, you know, there definitely is variability in the characteristics of grain from year to year and based on where that grain is grown as well. There is a level of, of terroir in spirits that I don't think a lot of people focus too much on or talk too much about. And, you know, having the ability to work as closely as we do with some of the farmers that we work with, we're able to kind of capitalize on that a little bit. We're not constantly going to some sort of big commodity grain market to pick up our grain every year. Um, time we need to do in order you know we're working with three or four different farms and you talk to them and you can tell it's been a bad year for like this year for example the corn harvest for the corn uh, variety of corn that we like to use was like a quarter of what it typically is in a typical year and that tells you that it was a super tough growing season um you know it was a little bit higher moisture content so it took a little bit longer to dry down for the stuff they were able to harvest and and uh you know that's causing some some interesting variability in some of the spirits that yeah we're I, was, I was just
0: about to ask you that about the flavor profile because you know i know there's a lot more water in grapes mm-hmm. so if it uh you know if there's a heavily, heavily rainy season uh yeah. usually yep. especially red grapes it takes its toll on them they mm-hmm. have no flavor or yeah. not enough flavor same with corn
1: it's similar not not quite to the same uh degree in that for grain, we're really looking at producing starches as opposed to sugars. So mm-hmm. um, the starch content is typically going to be just as high in a wet year as it as it is in a uh, in a dry year. But how we're able to kind of convert those starches, excuse me, into the sugars that we're then gonna ferment and, and distill is a little bit different from year to year. And just kind of the the ability to work with the grain can be a little bit uh, dependent on the moisture levels as well. You know, we have the ability that it's not something like a fruit where, we need to worry about it rotting or something like that. We can give it more time to dry down to that appropriate moisture content, which gives us definitely a lot more control over it than something like a like a fruit uh, fermented fruit or a fruit spirit or something like that. So, how long have you been here? Been here just over five years now. Okay,
0: so you were yeah. here almost from the beginning. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you've had a hand in most all of the spirits that have, as far as the, the developing the flavor profile of most all the spirits yeah you
1: know favorites. we've each taken kind of leads on different uh, different f- focuses. Um, so one of our old previous assistant distillers had was really focused on gins and that was kind of his, his brainchild so he definitely developed the recipe for the gins that um, you guys are tasting today. Uh, my focus be- has been a lot more on our aging program and, and making sure that that kind of continues to develop.
0: Well, I, you know, I see you pulled the Ivy yeah. City gin because that's what I asked about, but I'm really curious about, and I will taste that. Perfect,
1: <laughs> But, Perfect. but
0: I, I am also curious about something that you've had a hand in because I, that process, I'd like to kind of break down yeah. how you got to where it is. For so sure. I guess maybe we'll start with the, that
1: Yeah, that we can gin. start with the gin.
0: Now, in the botanicals that are used in the gin, this recipe or this combination was already there when you uh it was put together by someone else is that what you were telling me uh
1: we all sort of had a a hand in it it was one that we very much developed as a team i would say one of our previous assistant distillers kind of took the lead on it and would come up with different blends and we would all kind of try it and critique it together Mm -hmm. Um, so he was a little bit more kind of actively managing that one Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah it was definitely a profile that we were all shooting for you know it's very easy to fall in this trap with gins, I feel like of either trying to mimic something like a London dry style. That's very, very juniper forward. Right. Um, or the kind of flip side that I'm seeing a lot of, especially craft distillers get into is to focus much more heavily on the citrus components. Um, so things that are like almost had that kind of lemon pledge. Right. Uh, bouquet coming at you. So we wanted something that was a little bit sort of spicier, uh, in profile, and our head distiller Alex had this idea of trying to use a locally foraged botanical, and that's where we, we he came across the Appalachian allspice or American spice bush um, as the signature botanical in there, which I'm I'm sure he spoke about in the in the barrel gin as well. Um, but really, kind of gives it this nice spicy profile, sort of baking spice, cinnamon, nutmeg, that sort of thing coming through. Which is, I know when we first released this gin, we claimed we were the the first distillery to use that in a gin, and subsequently we were corrected that there were a couple before us, but you know, one that I think kind of gives a nice unique profile. And one of the few gins that I can recommend to people who just kind of like to sip gin, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not typically a spirit that I think about just kind of pouring myself a glass or or putting an ice cube or something in, but it's one that I think it's lends itself uh, pretty well to that as well as doing, you know, something that's a much more a uh, spirit-focused gin cocktail, like a martini or something like that, where you don't have to put a lot of vermouth in it to get any sort of a uh, flavor to it. Right.
0: Well, one of the things that really has uh, attracted me to the craft gin in this uh, region is the fact that you can. It's so complex, mm-hmm. if it's done right, that you can just, you know, put some ice, put it on some ice. That's how you know I'll drink it, or maybe a little mm-hmm. bit of soda, and that's it, and it's it's good. You're the perf- perfect person to ask about this. Okay. I noticed on your website, on the one uh, website, there was a question asked of everybody about <clears throat> what spirit is there that you aren't currently making that you would like to make. And I think it was, I don't know if it was Alex or Sandy, but one of them said the Jennifer. Jennifer, yeah. Uh, Jen, what is, and which is something you hear about, especially you go in these craft places all the time, What is the, what is Jennifer gin? I know it's obvious the 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 London gin, the British Mm -hmm. gin is very juniper forward. Right. What is it about Jennifer that makes Jennifer?
1: So the best way I like to describe Jennifer is that it's essentially, think think of, of most of the gins or most of the commercially available gins out there what they use as the base. They use something that's really neutral, so essentially a vodka as the base. Now, imagine you took that same base and instead of using a vodka base, you used a whiskey. So it's gonna be a lot more grain forward coming through, a lot more kind of richness, a lot more oiliness coming through, um, characteristics like that. Um, It sometimes is barrel aged, sometimes is not barrel aged. You know, typically if you're doing something that's gonna mimic like an old Tom style, um, of of Jennifer, then it, it typically will have some barrel aging on it, um, but definitely not something that's a hundred percent necessary. It does tend to be a little bit more juniper forward, just like a, a London dry style is. But really, it's that kind of graininess. Typically, if you're kind of doing things in the in the traditional Dutch style, it's going to be a malted barley base, so a little bit sweeter mm. as well. You know, one that we've sort of played around with a little bit and some trials, but it's a specific palate that really enjoys that, that spirit. And, you know, we haven't, uh, haven't found a whole lot of people kind of itching for it, unfortunately. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're always trying to push the envelopes of what we can do and experiment with a lot of new things. But at the end of the day, we need, do need to have some people out there who are, are willing to drink it as
0: well. Yeah, right. right, Yeah.
1: You're um, trying to sell it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we sort of compromised in that and, 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 Pushing more of the the barrel aged spirit that we have out there, which you know I think it uses a very similar uh, botanical profile to the to the Ivy City Gin, just kind of obviously with the with the added layers of the of the wood interaction, but then just kind of some amped up botanicals as well. So you'll notice a lot more juniper forward there um, versus the Ivy City, which you know we purposely dialed that juniper back so that yeah. we weren't kind of. Um, mimicking something like a London Dry style and allowing some of the other botanicals to shine a little bit better as well. So, yeah, yeah that's that's kind of where where we stand on it. I'm not going to say we're not going to do a Geneva down the down the line, but um, it's it's probably not the the highlight we're going to stick to right okay. now. Okay. Well, I
0: I really like that Ivy City. That's, that's good. That's good. really good. So, what about yourself? You're somebody who uh, obviously um, tastes most all the flavors that are coming through whatever it is that you all produce. Mm-hmm. What is what would you pour glass uh what, what would you drink after a long day? Yeah.
1: So, uh you know you mentioned that that part on our website right. where uh we all kind of talk about the different spirits that we make that or that we don't make that I kind of wish we did or that okay. I, that I gravitate towards. I'm much more a person who gravitates towards if I'm not drinking one of our own things towards fruit spirits. Um, so that can be anything like a cognac or an Armagnac. That's a great base or, uh, Calvados or some sort of apple brandy or port port as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I drink a fair amount of wine, um, uh, as well. Those are just kind of the, the things that, that I enjoy to drink when, uh, when I'm just relaxing a little bit (laughs) more
0: of the district made line or the untitled or whatever. What would you go to reach for first?
1: Yeah, probably one of our whiskeys. Uh, so I definitely gravitate a little bit more towards to that—the uh, nuance of the barrel flavors coming through. Um, so probably, and if I could, if I could make a pitch to the whiskey drinkers out there, um, I would stick more to a rye whiskey. I think, uh, even though bourbon has a lot more popularity in general and a lot more popularity in this, uh, is a lot more popular in this country. Uh, I think rye whiskey is very much an underappreciated spirit. And, you know, the rye whiskey mash bill that we use is one that I think is really unique. Um, So it's, there's two kind of main categories of of rye whiskey. There's something that's called a Pennsylvania or Monongahela style rye, which is really, really high rye content. So typically somewhere in the neighborhood of 95 to 100% uh, rye. Um, And then there's Maryland style rye, which has a little bit of corn added to the mash bill, just kind of a little bit sweeter, a little bit smoother, easier to drink. Um, so we kind of stick to more of that Maryland style playbook. So we have a little bit of corn in the mash bill, but we use the, uh, about 25%, uh, malted rye in the mash bill. So malted grains are grains that have been steeped and, and start that germination process and then, um, somehow dried. So all of the grain, we, all the malted grains that we use are, are kiln dried to stop that process. So it gives it these kind of toasty, um, almost like a crystallized honey note to it, which is, which is a note that I really like and. Um, you know, it's pretty unusual to have such a large proportion, not, not only to use malted rye in general, but to use such a high per, uh, percentage of that in the mul- uh, mash bill as well.
0: While bourbon, at, at least from what I've heard you say, and mm-hmm. also Alex and Sandy say, is much more popular sales-wise right mm-hmm. now, yeah. uh, rye, I think, is coming up.
1: Yeah, you know, it's and definitely, if you look at it compared to 10 years ago, it's, yeah. it's definitely grown as a category
0: yeah, um, I, I see it, you know, because when I do a lot of research on the internet with who I'm going to speak with and that type of thing, I, I notice I see rye really being put out there because I think it's something that's up and coming. Mm-hmm. I remember back when I was in the 80s, I was at college <laughs> and, you know, ha- had no money, but still going to buy, you know, we'd have parties. Uh, they, there was this rye rye whiskey called Lem Motlow's. Lem Motlow's, Jack Daniels is made by the Lem Motlow's uh, okay. company. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure this was like their bottom of the barrel stuff, <laughs> and uh, but we got some for parties, and it wasn't it wasn't bad, but it was that it kind of reflected the what people thought about rye back then. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really I don't think there was an expensive rye whiskey no out there.
1: No, you know? I mean you still see brands that that kind of adhere to that mindset. So something like an old Overholter or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm sure it was a very probably a very similar whiskey, but that's. <laughs> That really assertive, really menthol-y rye yeah. that, you know, I, I enjoy in some cocktails, but it's definitely not something that I would, <laughs> would sip on its own, at least not if I was trying to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but I think, yeah, you're, you're right. There's a lot more brands out there making that kind of smoother um, sipping rye that I, I just don't think you saw very much of 10, 15 years ago.
0: So on the risky of the whiskeys that you make here, or that are within reaching distance here yeah let me what have... uh what would you like me to try sure. what would
1: you... um let me see what i have back there
0: and while steven selecting a spirit we'll take time out for this we'll be right back this episode of barrel tasting with howard fletcher is brought to you by visit loudon the tourist office for dc's wine country Visit Loudon invites you to D.C.'s wine country, a mere 30 miles from the nation's capital. Loudon is the Napa Valley of the Mid-Atlantic. Home to more than 40 wineries, Loudon's vineyards provide views of everything from the lush rolling hills of the Virginia countryside to the soaring slopes of the Blue Ridge Mountains. With fire pits, outdoor patios, and acres of open land perfect for vineyard picnics, Loudon's wineries are ready to welcome you at any time of year to enjoy award-winning viognier, Cab Franc, Merlot, Norton, and Bordeaux blends. My favorite. There's more than just drinking wine when you come to visit DC's wine country. Take part in unique experiences such as vineyard hikes paired with personal tasting kits, sangria-making classes, and special wine-pairing dinners. And if you enjoy the day, listen, why not stay longer? Dine in superb restaurants or check into one of the boutique B&Bs or luxury resorts and make a weekend of it. Joan and I have, and we've had a ball start planning your trip to D.C.'s wine country, check out visitloudon.org. That's V-I-S-I-T-L-O-U-D-O-U-N.org. And now back to the show.
1: So this guy that I just poured you is our cask strength rye. Um, so a little bit older than kind of our flagship. So just over five years old. Um, sadly we're actually sold out of this one, um, at the moment, but it is a product that we're probably going to re-release once a year or so. Um, it's kind of a le- uh, limited seasonal release, but.
0: So this was put in the barrel, like almost right Yeah, this was beginning. like
1: 2015, I think, uh, this one went in the barrel. So, and the nose, you're going to get a lot of the, the influence of that, um, malted rye coming through. One of the notes that I think is kind of a, a nice signature, um, flavor in all of our eyes you know from our flagship one all the way through the the older expressions as well is this kind of sweet cherry or cherry cola note that comes through just really really nice and then uh as a sipper super smooth i'm gonna warn you it's 132 proof (laughs) thank you (laughs) so it's uh it definitely doesn't taste 132 proof but
0: um, that makes it it double dangerous
1: exactly so uh (laughs) It's one I'm no longer allowed to keep in my house for that reason.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Luckily, I don't smoke. Yeah. Wow, that is that is smooth. Thank you. I, I mean, I wouldn't have... If you hadn't told me about the proof, I would have thought this was yeah. 90, I, 80, 90 proof. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I don't usually make that caveat about a lot of the things that we make, but once you get above 120, <laughs> I feel like it, it needs a little bit of a disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Wow. So, uh, do you remember how many cases of this you all produced?
1: It was so all of the, whether it's cast strength or bottle and bond releases that we've done are all coming out of single barrels now. So I want to say this was, uh, 30, 35 cases, something like that. So,
0: yeah. and when did it sell out? Uh, like how fast, maybe? yeah,
1: we released it right around Thanksgiving and I think oh, it was, wow. so, I think it was sold out by, uh, middle of December. Um, that's so, crazy. So it was it was pretty quick. <laughs> um, yeah, you know we've been really really careful with these uh, these more limited releases because you know it the old stock that we have back there is limited, um, right. and you know it's tempting to just be like oh we're gonna keep rolling out this product again and again, but we don't want to get to this situation where we, we completely run out of it. So
0: so um, is this this uh, cask strength bourbon? It are you gonna try to keep it? At five years, like, it, like, did you make some in 2016 and then that's going to be the next release?
1: Yeah, so I think the the rye whiskey is going to stay somewhere in that kind of five to six year range. Um, we haven't released a cast strength bourbon yet. Probably going to wait till it's at least six years old to do that and then, you know, probably keep that, I would say, somewhere in, like, the six to eight year range. Hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, our oldest barrel back there just turned so Six back in December, um, so we're not totally hundred percent sure how those flavors are going to develop over the next couple of years. But I think that's going to be kind of where our bourbon's going to going to pour best in that
0: kind of six to eight year uh, time frame Wow, that's that is uh, well. I'm marveling over it. it. tastes It tastes very good, and the nose was good. I'm I, I'm not admittedly uh, a whiskey drinker to the extent where I'm really mm-hmm. dying, you know breaking down the flavors of it. But the fact that it's that proof, I mean, mm-hmm. this stuff, I would buy. A bo- <laughs> I would buy a bottle of this just for that, just for like a a, a, a party trick. Here, t- taste mm-hmm. this. That's one hundred and thirty proof.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's. <laughs> I would say that's something that we purposely cultivated as a house style, for for better or worse. I guess is the best way to say. Um, you know, we're we're a group of people who naturally like spirits on the higher side, just for the flavor, comp- you know, not cause we want right. to be out there and get totally wasted all the time, but just, you know, the, the flavors that you can get through in those fuller or la- higher proof spirits are just something that you can't replicate necessarily going to the liquor store. And personally, I'd rather give you that spirit at a higher proof, as long as it's, balanced and, and drinkable at that proof, and you can add the water you want to it. I right. mean, water's free. Um, I'm not going to give you a, a <laughs> bottle that's half half booze and half water um, and charge you the same amount for it. It just right. doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so you'll notice that a lot of the spirits that, that we produce are uh, on the higher side, um, with the exception of the gin, <laughs> the gin that you take. <laughs> Although we actually are going to be uh, slightly tweaking that formulation and raising the proof of, of the gin as well. So currently we have it as an 80 proof spirit. Um, we're gonna, the next batch we produce is going to be at 88 proof, just cause that we like the, the, how the botanicals shine through a little bit higher. Better yeah. Than well, higher I
0: did notice the first, um, craft gin I had was from a distiller up in Frederick and that's 90 proof, mm-hmm. which I was very surprised cause as a gin drinker, of, as a London gin, gin drinker, I always liked regular Bombay gin as opposed mm-hmm. to like Sapphire or Tangeray because it was lower in, uh, proof mm-hmm. and it just drank better. I thought since all I was tasting was juniper anyway, <laughs> anyway right, right. but with those other, uh, I found that with the, the higher proof gins that are made with all these botanicals that, uh, and the juniper is toned down, it's very complex. It's very yeah.
1: Complex. You know, and especially those, uh, those flavors that are a little bit more subtle, so things like your citrus notes and, uh, some of your spicier notes, you know, they really can get diluted out of the picture. Um, if you go to, I mean, juniper, you could dilute it down to 40 proof, you'd still be able to taste the juniper, but, um, you know, a lot of the botanicals that we're using and a lot of other craft guys are using, um, just are a little bit more subtle and to be able to, to make sure that that spirit stays in balance, Mm -hmm. um, having them at higher proof is usually a a better way to go.
0: Now in your, probably not, but now that I think about it, but in your experience before you came on as a quote unquote intern for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. Did you have any experience in blending or mixing uh, spirits? You mentioned, you know, back you'd worked in some with some wine, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so,
1: so I had done a little bit of work uh, of blending wine. Um, not so much spirits, mm-hmm. really. Um, I'd sort of, uh, like I said, uh, uh, done a, a brief stint at a distillery up in Maine. So I'd sort of watched it being done, but not had a whole lot of um, experience on my own. That being said, I was never totally happy with a lot of the spirits that I could get from liquor stores. So I would sometimes, bah, blending seems like such a, <laughs> uh, a generous way to put it. But yeah. <laughs> um, I would constantly
0: kind of mix things together to, to, to try to hit flavor profiles oh, that, uh, that I wanted. Would you mix just two different? Two- Liquors together, or did you put other things in the? In Typically, the... I
1: was I was sticking with with mixing spirits together, right. um, and so you know I think a way that a lot of and this this is something that's pretty uh, common in kind of the whiskey nerd cultures uh, something called an infinity bottle, um, where basically you finish up to you know the last hundred milliliters or so of a bottle, and then either mix those together or constantly top it off with something else. So um, I constantly have a couple of decanters at home that are just remnants of various things go into to, to try to it's create the a, same,
0: the same type of all the, spirit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm always, <laughs> I've only ever done it. I've only ever really done it with whiskeys. Um, it's not necessarily, <laughs> it's not necessarily the same type of whiskey every time. Okay, so, I'll, but so I'll mix bourbons and rice together. Okay, okay. Um, I have a separate one that's just single malts. Okay. Um, or, or, or barley based spirits of, of okay. some sort. Um, yeah, it's, okay. it's sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not so great. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it's if you come over a month later, it's never going to be the same uh, whiskey no, I'm going to serve you. Um, but it's just I've I found that I have this habit of it being really difficult to kill bottles of spirits. So like I'll have 20, 30 different bottles with like, you know, half an inch left right. in them. And uh, I found that kind of just as a way to, to make it interesting of, of using that kind of concept of infinity bottles is uh, allows me to let go of those things a little <laughs> bit better and give them what I feel like is another life. You know, it's maybe it's not, but it's it's yeah. allowed me to kind of uh I'm sure the character is probably
0: it. quite interesting and you know, wow.
1: It's yeah. a fun it's a fun exercise. Yeah. Like I said, yeah. not every it doesn't always work out. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, sure. So sure. Um, I don't do it with quite as much I guess forethought as I do at work, you know, when it's, when we're trying to kind of have consistent profiles here, you know, it's, it's a much higher stakes, uh, kind of thing. But, you know, I, I do feel fortunate and that I've been given the opportunity here to really have free reign with, with an entire room full of whiskey, which is, uh, a gift that I can't really speak highly enough, uh, about, you know, there's not a whole lot of, uh, companies out there where, Someone coming into them without a whole lot of of structured training in in how to blend whiskeys together would be given, you know, such free reign to really do what they want. And I think, you know, it's allowed us to kind of make (laughs) some products that wouldn't be produced in in kind of your standard uh, Kentucky distillery.
0: Well, I think that's what this is, uh, this whole craft movement here is all about, Mm -hmm. which I thought, well, to me, at least that's what I find very interesting and uh, intriguing about it, attractive about it, is that, uh, you know, you can, there are like little labs, little Mm -hmm. laboratories, and, you know, you can create something that is, that is unique to this area. I was uh, talking to a craft beer guy, and, well, I always ask this of the craft beer guy, because you hear about these New England IPAs, California IPAs, and I'm waiting for like, can we get a Mid-Atlantic IPA or a Maryland IPA or Virginia, whatever, you mm-hmm. know, something like a district IPA. Now, we always hear about Kentucky bourbon, Kentucky, like, even though we know that rye all started here. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really, that's why I'm very much attracted to places, especially that adopt the name District Made, because I really, as a homer, would love mm-hmm. for us to establish yeah. a, that's a Maryland or a D.C. or whatever rye or, or bourbon or whatever, whatever yeah for
1: sure and you know i think uh you know you are seeing other regions of the country and spirits trying to put their own distinct stamp on what different types of spirits are going to be so you see things like empire rye up in new york taking hold um you know definitely maryland distilleries are trying to reown that that yes. maryland style yeah. rye um you know, the one thing that I think is going to always make that difficult, especially for different people coming into this with different ideas about what something should be, is that it's really hard to make a regional style yeah. together and, and and to get that group thought, you know. And then I think the way a lot of these kind of distillery guilds and things like that are, are approaching that issue or just kind of putting the parameters of like, hey, it needs to be at least 50 or 75 percent locally grown grain and it, and, you know, it needs to be at least two years old and some of these kind of parameters around it, but, you know, let the distillers do what they think is best. And honestly, you know, the stuff that we make is not going to be to everyone's taste. uh, And the stuff that another distillery makes might not be to our taste, but like, I think that's, that's kind of the point, right. You know, put out, uh, and that's something that I've always said is that we put out the stuff that we like to drink and we hope there's enough people out there that agree with us. Um, and that's really the best we can do. You know, I'm not going to put out something that's necessarily going to appeal to, to everyone's palate. I mean, th- with spirits, you just can't do that. Um, you know, no matter how much sugar you dump in something, not everyone's going to want to drink it. <laughs> um, uh, but we can put out something that we think adds to the conversation and is in a style that we like and, and, you know what we've found so far is that there are a lot of people out there who who like to drink like we drink. So, um, you know, that's been that's been rewarding for sure.
0: Well, I'm looking at the uh at the clock and I know I'm taking up a lot of your time. Yeah. You got something coming in in a little while, a delivery coming. Mm-hmm. So, with the time we have left, um and I do appreciate this. I appreciate you pouring this apparently very sacred uh <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's the last like oh, 200 gee.
1: milliliters in the building oh so. <laughs> my god
0: you know i am honored this is this was really neat um what what would you like to first do you have any advice for anybody who's interested in getting into this business as somebody who came into it just from something not so you know you came from a farm background so that's mm-hmm. very much connected to this but anyway yeah. somebody listening to the podcast is saying I'd like to get into distilling. I don't know how to do it. Do you have any tips?
1: Um, you know, the, I mean, two pieces of advice that I can give you would be learn what you like to drink and learn a little bit about how it's made. So, you know, if you like to drink whiskey, you go out there and try as many types of whiskey as you can. Try them from all over the the, the different regions of the country. Try them from all over the world. You know, I think we're, we're in a really interesting time in, in whiskey in a lot of different spirits where... You know, there's Italian single malts and and different types of whiskeys being made out there. French, English, you know, uh, Taiwan, all sorts of things, which, you know, go out there and and see what you like and see why it speaks to you. Do a little bit of research about what in how those are made really appeals to you. And then second, go out and meet the people making it. You know, uh, if I hadn't reached out to the guys here and just said, hey, can I come hang out because I got nothing better to do? I wouldn't be here right now. Um, and I think everyone who is, who starts a business like this and is passionate about what they're doing wants to talk about it (laughs) and wants to tell you what they're doing, why they're doing it and why they have a passionate or why they have a passion for it. And, um, you know, Sometimes those people won't shut up. <laughs> but um, I've found it to be an industry where people are more than happy to share and more than happy to welcome you in. Yeah, um, so, That's why I have a
0: podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know,
1: I, I I think that's really the best way to do it. And, you know, I'm someone who's very much more of an introverted person, so it can be difficult to kind of go out there and try to make those connections for, for someone like me. But um, I've found over the years that uh, it's a group of people that um, – are just so welcoming and so happy to um, expand the fold as much as possible. So um, I really think that anyone who's interested will,
0: will find a welcoming committee <laughs> to, to welcome you in. And well, and Stephen, just, you know, Mike is yours again to say whatever you'd like people to know about what's happening down here at 1-8. District made.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, definitely just want to emphasize uh, the various spirits that we've we have um you know so we try to make a pretty wide range to to suit as many people as we possibly can um always making sure that the quality for what we're shooting for is uh is top notch and you know part of that and kind of part of our ethos is always working with those local farms like as you mentioned uh, we've got about 15 tons of grain coming in from a local farmer in virginia um in the next few minutes here so
0: how uh, much is that 15 Tons. I believe it's 15, I believe it's 15 tons. Don't, don't quote me on that, but yeah, you know we one ton is a lot. Okay, to me. So. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, each
1: each day we're going through uh, just about two tons of grain. Um, so um, you know we we go through a lot of it, and making sure that that as much of that uh, money and support stays in our local economy, the the better. You know, as someone who who was previously a full-time farmer, you know, that's definitely something I'm super passionate about, about making sure that we're um, creating and sustaining those local foodways um, is definitely something that's important. But at the end of the day, you know, really for us, it's about putting out a product that we feel is better, being able to work with those farms and um, knowing the specifics about the ingredients that we're using and knowing how we can use those to um, craft a product that's uh, gonna be delicious at the end of the day is really what we're all about. So.
0: Well, I think you've been successful in that yeah. uh, in that vein. So, thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah, for, thank you. For the Appreciate the time. It. Um, I hope people listening learned a lot. I certainly have learned a lot. Awesome. I always do. So, uh, thanks, and uh, I'll be back. Sounds good, man. All right, bye bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a great time speaking with Stephen Corrigan of One Eight Distilling. If you live in or near the DMV, or if you're planning to visit the nation's capital, please go to One Eight Distilling's website. To see when you can pop by to pick up a bottle of Ivy City gin or rye or untitled whiskey or whatever they have. Whatever you get, it's going to be good. Trust me. I'd like to thank the 18 team for taking time out of their busy schedule to be guests on my show. Stephen, you're always welcome to come on and discuss all things craft spirits, infinity bottles, and <laughs> DC related. I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. If you agree with that sentiment, please share the podcast. The more it grows, the more we can get the word out about craft beverage culture in the DMV. This show was written, produced, and birthed by yours truly. I'm Howard Fletcher. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media you could be listening to besides me, and that's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time, investment, in me. Thanks again for listening. And remember, always have a designated driver, so I'll see you next time. East Vicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.